So this week, I was talking with a friend of mine. In fact, it was just yesterday. I was talking with a friend of mine, and she made a very profound statement. Now, let me preface this just a minute. We were talking about the grass in my front yard. And when Bobby and I moved here almost four years ago, you know, it was December. You know what lawns look like in December. You know, they're not that great. They're not that bad around here, but they're not that great. And, um, you know, it came, came around to springtime that year, and I realized that the watering system we had, I could set up on my phone with an app. And I could program it and do all these fun things, you know. You know us young 50-year-olds, you know. We love our gadgets, right? I don't get to say young 50-year-olds very often anymore. Um, but, but we were talking about the lawn the other day, and she was just like, man, your lawn, lo- the lawn looks so nice. You know, it used to look so bad, and it looks so nice now. And I'm sitting there complaining about the 10 dandelions I have in it, you know, um, because I've been fighting those things like year after year after year, and it's like they just, none of the other yards around me have dandelions in them, just mine. It's like they gravitate, and I still, I throw out the stuff, you know, and they die back a little bit. And then every once in a while, they'll pick up, and they'll, they'll put just one little tiny, and it'll be a very meager-looking, piddly dandelion. And won't you know I'll miss it, and it'll go to seed. And it just, you know, the wind will blow, just poof, and there it is, right? Fifty million more of them ready to go right? That's how it works. I know. I know that's how it works. But she said something that that just stuck in my brain, and I had to share it with you this morning. She said, everything that is living needs to be fed. Your yard needs to be fed. And I thought about that for a minute. And then I thought about what I'm talking about this morning, which is dining with Jesus, a place at the table for sinners and saints, right? Jesus's table was more than just feeding nourishment to a body, but that was part of it. You see, food and our need for food are part of God's good creation. God designed it that way. We get a taste of the kingdom when we dine with Jesus, when we sit with him at the table. We experience more than just nourishment of our body. We experience the goodness of God, and we celebrate what God has done. We celebrate what God can do and what God will do. Now, the dining room table has been used for a whole lot of different things over the years, right? I mean, if you think about it, in in the 50s and 60s, you know, June and Ward Cleaver, that was about that time, right? I never remember for sure because I only watched it in black and white reruns as a kid. And I remind people of that because I want to feel younger than I am. But I do remember, they would remember June would meet Ward, probably, I think, with his pipe and slippers at the door. She was dressed, you know, and always wore the shoes and the the dress and the skirt and the pearls, you know. She always, and she always had dinner on the table, right? It was always, come on, let's eat dinner. We all eat dinner together. And through the years, the, the dining room table has been used for a lot of things, you know. I can remember my mom once in a while setting her sewing machine up on half of this huge dining room table, and we were not to go near her scissors. If you even looked at her scissors, if she was around, don't touch. Those are my good sewing scissors. 
I don't want them cutting anything but what I cut them, what I cut with them, you know? That's, that was her thing. She would give us other pairs of scissors to use, but those shiny chrome, you know, they were just really shiny, and they just looked like they would cut everything so much better. Sometimes mom wasn't home. We'd sneak her scissors. And every time she would know, every single time she would know, Dining room table's been used for a whole lot of different things. We, we would set up maybe a puzzle on it once in a while, Christmas time or Thanksgiving time. Or... In the 80s and 90s, though, it really didn't get used for eating dinner around as much. We had little TV trays. I can remember as a teenager, we had our own TV trays. Even as a kid, we had our own TV trays. You know, we had little cartoon TV trays that sat on the couch with us. Then as we got older and bigger, you know, we got the regular TV trays that sat out in front of us. But in Jesus' time, you sat around a table to eat food. It held a different place in society. It was special. Eating together meant something. Now, our culture in the past, that has been true. Dining together has been a place of celebration. It's been a place for family. It's been a place for uh, healing. It's been a place to center around life-giving food. Mom used to joke and say, you know, she cooked Thanksgiving and cooked Christmas and the rest of the time we fend for ourselves. That wasn't really true. It might have been a little partial bit true, okay, but not really true. We had dinner. We had breakfast. We always watched the Seahawks and had pancakes together. That was kind of important growing up. Food shows up all the time, and you'll notice today we have a wonderful table plastic food, but it's still pretty, right? And food shows up on the very first pages of Scripture. God made everything, says, look at all this wonderful stuff for you to eat. Just don't eat this one fruit from this one tree. You can eat from anything else in it. And Adam and Eve do what? Eat the one thing they were asked not to eat or told not to eat, really, right? Food is on the very last pages of Scripture, it plays a part in, in God revealing himself from start to finish. Now, the human body and the food to nourish that body were created good, uh, by God, and they were declared good. Even after the fall of humanity, after the flood, that Noah, and one of the kids had a shirt on about Noah today, and I loved it. It says, have faith like Noah. Faith like Noah. Can you imagine building the boat where there is no water? Telling people, hey, you know, I know you've never seen this before, but the heavens are going to open up and there's going to be a bunch of water pouring out of the sky. Yeah, right, Noah. You're crazy. I want to have faith like Noah. God repeats the mandate about eating food. He adds meat. And I'm thankful because I like that. I would not have made a good Jewish boy. I'm glad that God did not have me be born to Jewish parents because... I really like bacon. I mean, not that you couldn't tell by my physique, but I really like bacon. I think I, I save, Bobby and I save our bacon grease at home. We do. And the other day, uh, this has been about a month or so ago, uh, didn't have quite enough oil to make some popcorn. So I thought, I'm going to just get me some bacon grease and throw in that pan. Best popcorn ever. 
Bacon-flavored popcorn is awesome. Go home, cook some bacon, save the grease, try it. I guarantee if you, if you even think you like bacon, you're going to love bacon-flavored popcorn, okay? It's just awesome. God has used food all throughout the Bible. There's feasts in Leviticus. Jesus' tendency to dine with sinners at the table, um, that's been a place where we can really see the heart of God. It reveals God. And, and then, you know, at the end of the Bible in Revelation, we see the marriage supper of the Lamb, where everything is made right. And the fullness of the kingdom of God is going to be experienced. I don't exactly know how that's going to pan out. I really don't know what it is going to entail. I just know it's going to be absolutely spectacular. It's going to be more than we can imagine. In the beginning of our story that we're going to listen to today, Luke chapter 15, Jesus is called out, though, for sharing his table with people who are not deemed worthy of his company. The religious leaders of the day, they kind of get irritated with Jesus because he receives sinners at his table. And not only that, but he goes into their homes and eats at their tables too. And Jesus responds to their criticism with three parables. He talks about the lost sheep. We remember that one. Jesus tells us, when a shepherd loses one sheep, he leaves the 99 and he goes and he searches out the one. We hear about the woman and the lost coins and she cleans her house from top to bottom until what? She finds the two little pennies she's looking for, right? And then the last one, the lost son. We know it as the prodigal son. But you know what? Really, that story shows us more about God the Father than it really does about the lost son. I really, really wish we had referred to that as the prodigal God. Because what God does as the father in this parable was so countercultural to society of Jesus' time. And remember, a lot of their culture was wrapped up in what? The law and teachings of Moses, Right? That's the parable I want to take a quick look at today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 15. If you've got it in your U version, you probably can just punch it up really quick or you can read it off the screen. <coughs> Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a different country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed, what was he feeding? Oh, out to the field to feed pigs. Can you imagine? Because pigs are unclean, right? To the Jewish people. Could you imagine what he was doing? He had lowered himself as low as you possibly could get, right? And so he longed to fill his stomach with the pods of pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. 
I will set out. I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, he went to his father. And this part right here is the part that I love the absolute most. But while he was still a long way off, do you know why I love that part so much? First off, I can tell you I've been the lost son, okay? I can tell you that. But this tells me that the father was looking for the son to return. Hold that peace in your minds as we continue to read this. While he was a still, still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. Hold that peace for just a minute in your, in your brains with me as we continue to read. He threw his arms around him. He kissed him. The son said to him, Father... I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked them what was going on. Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed you. Not even once your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We've all heard many sermons, I'm sure, regarding the two sons in this parable, right? The younger son disrespecting the father and, and really the whole entire family by asking for his inheritance early, right? Remember, when was inheritance handed out? It was handed out when the father died. And it was also divvied up a little bit differently because the older son got a double portion and then the rest of it was divided up between the rest of the boys. There's an occasion in the Bible where we do see that a daughter had gotten an inheritance of some sort, but normally it was for the boys. So you have to realize when the son said, Dad, I want you to give me my inheritance now, there were some things that had to happen, right? I mean, it cost the elder son because there would have been property that was sold off more than likely to be able to make the younger son's request happen. And what father in his right mind in that day in an honor-bound society, right? What father would actually give in to such a demand 
of a child. How disrespectful. You're saying you want me dead. You're saying I owe you this now. We've turned our focus on the elder son looking at the the end of the story, right? His hardened heart. Do you know that it's really the firstborn son's job when there's a celebration in Jewish culture? It's his job to make sure that everything goes fine so that dad can be the host and, you know, kind of work the room and meet and greet everybody and make sure that he's, you know, talking with everyone. And it's the son, the elder son, that's supposed to make sure that the food is replenished and that the wine was replenished and that the music was going well and upbeat and that everything was happening that was supposed to be happening. It's the son who's supposed to be doing that. And what does he do? He won't even go in the house. And in fact, he disrespects his father just as poorly by making his father leave the celebration and come out to him. You notice that in the story, right? We've heard a million sermons about all this. You guys know this stuff. But what do we see in this story when we turn our focus to the Father? We learn that God's grace and forgiveness, while it is never fair, it is always just. Because just like the father ran towards the younger son, can you imagine what that looked like? Fathers don't run, not in that society. No, they don't. You come to him. You respect your elders, right? You honor your parents. No, he ran to his younger son. And just like that, he also went out to the older son. That evening, he went out to the older son. It's always just, but forgiveness is never fair. And then have we actually considered who the father is in this story? Jesus is telling a parable. He's telling a story, but he's really talking to us about the characteristics of God, the father, represented by the earthly father. And my mind begins to really look into and think about What it means when Jesus is saying, while he, the younger son, was still a long way off, his father saw him. Dad had a lot of important things to do for the family each and every day, right? He really did. He really did have a lot of things to do. And yet, this father was setting aside his normal duties to look for his son, that disrespectful, dad, I wish you were dead, son. Add to it, the father doesn't wait for the son. The father runs to his son, meeting him somewhere between what a long way off was and where he actually was. Have you ever seen somebody from a long way off and recognize them. I got to tell you here about a month or so ago, maybe a month and a half ago, um, we, we had some trouble with some people deciding they'd come into the parking lot and spin Brody's and tear up the parking lot. And so I came up with a genius idea. I parked the church van in the middle of where they were doing that. 
and it was in the middle of the parking lot, not in a stall, and it stopped. It hasn't started back up yet. We parked the van in a stall now, but it hasn't started back up. But on the day that I had had a pickup truck and an SUV and a Corvette do that all on the same day, Bobby had come in to bring me my lunch or something, and, and we noticed on the security cameras in the office, we had kind of noticed, oh, man, there's another SUV here. And they've pulled right in front of the church. I bet you they're going to pull out Brody's. Oh, man, I gotta, if I just go out there and stand out there, you know, out from underneath the, the little drop-off place under the, the carport there, usually people see me and they stop, right? And as we're walking out, Bobby's like, I don't think they're going to do that. And I'm like, why? She says, that's Melissa Mori. That's our DS's wife. She recognized Melissa. Melissa was getting out of the car to take a picture of the church. Now, let me tell you why Melissa does that. Because by her desk in the district office, because she helps out in the district office, she has pictures of all the churches on our denomina- of our district, and she prays for us each and every day. That kind of touches my heart, that my DS and his wife pray for us each and every day. And to remind them who we are and where we are, they take a picture of the building. Bobby said, no, that's Melissa. That's got to be Melissa. They're not going to pull Brody's out there. And sure enough, that's who it was, Dave and Melissa. It was great. I loved it. But Bobby recognized her from a long way off. You have to be looking for someone, at someone, recognizing There is something about when people walk into the church that if I happen to be up here, like on night of practice, and I can see them coming through, oh, yeah, I know who that is. But I have to be paying attention. This father was looking for his son from a long way off, out on the horizon. And the father doesn't wait for the son to get to him. He begins running towards his son, and he meets him somewhere in between whatever was a long way off and whatever he was at. And then the son starts into his speech. Remember, he had a whole speech. I'm going to tell him I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy enough to be, you know, your son anymore. Let me just be your servant. Make me one of your hired people. He had that whole speech, and he gets like one sentence out. Dad, I'm sorry. I don't deserve to be your son. I have sinned against heaven and sinned against you. I'm sorry. And what does the dad do? The son starts into a speech asking for forgiveness. He doesn't. Dad starts to do all these wonderful things. Best robe. Family ring. You know what that means, right? In Jesus' time and culture, that's how business was done. You had your father's ring. It was some kind of a family symbol, a family crest, if you would. And that's how you got things done for dad. Oh, sandals. You know, we just go down to Payless Shoe Source and buy whatever we want whenever we want. You know, that was not the case back then. There were no Nike Air Jordans. I know, surprise. You guys are surprised about that, right? Sandals for his feet, and then the calf. Hey, servants, really quickly, listen, that Kobe beef we've been out there feeding, the one thing, you know, we've been graining that thing up. We've been feeding it a little extra on the side. Get that good marble in that meat. 
go butcher that out because we're throwing a party. The bottom line here is that Jesus rarely ate with those who were deserving. In fact, I'm going to say this, and please do not be offended, but there isn't a single person here who deserves to eat a meal with Jesus. Me included, hello. None of us are deserving, but Jesus is constantly inviting anyone, those who will, to come sit down and dine with him. And that's really kind of the introduction to my sermon, and they're already flashing the zero at me. We're at 1020, so we're going to have to go really quickly through this last little part. Because I want to get to this. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, Have you never read what David did when him and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even in the Sabbath. Now, this was not some Michelin five-star dining experience that the Pharisees were picking apart right? It's hand-picked grain in a field. It takes place in all the synoptic gospels. In Mark's account, for whatever reason, it's really up close to the beginning. This isn't the first instance of Jesus eating with others, but it is a special instance because for the first time in Mark, we see Jesus doing something which would be considered unlawful. He's eaten already with sinners and tax collectors which is kind of that extra special group of sinner, remember, in the Bible? It was always sinners and tax collectors. We tend to do that in our society, too. Don't get me wrong. We, we tend to have our favorite sinners, you know, the gossips, the ones who might speak ill of somebody else. You know, if you can't say something nice, come sit by me. You know, we hear that, right? <laughs> You're supposed to laugh at that point, yes. That was a joke. But there is some reality in that joke too, though, right? We do realize that we tend to minimize that kind of thing, and then we go after what we think is the worst, right? And so we, yeah, well, you know, there's sinners, and then there's fill in the blank, you know, with wherever you're going to go with that. His disciples are questioned for their lack of fasting, but here is where Jesus Jesus is, is not just doing something that maybe they could frown upon. He's doing something unlawful. And he comes into direct confrontation with the regularities of his culture. He's confronted for laboring on the Sabbath. He's picking heads of grain with his disciple. Now, if you read Deuteronomy 23, 25, this is allowed. However, the Pharisees liked to add a little bit more. Okay, they liked to build a fence around the law so that you wouldn't even get close to breaking the law. In other words, they didn't want to even approach sin, right? 
So they wanted to build this fence around the law, so they made it even tougher. And they put up all these additional regulations, regulations that God had not required. So because picking grain might be considered servant's work, they called it sinful to do that on the Sabbath. And as always, Jesus sees this with absolute perfect clarity. And he reminds the Sabbath of actions of Israel's most beloved king, King David. He says, hey, wait a minute. Do you not remember King David who ate the bread that was consecrated for the priests because that was unlawful for anyone else to touch. And if you don't catch it, if you don't look real closely, you'll miss the fact that Jesus just aligned himself with David. And it's not merely a hint. He's outright saying, so I am indeed the son of man, Lord of the Sabbath, right? And then he says something that ought to give us a little bit of pause to think about. That Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he reestablishes truth. Later on, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Sabbath is not made. uh, We are not necessarily made for Sabbath. Sabbath was made for us. It was created for us. God lives a rhythm of life in the story of creation. And we are shown that this is the rhythm Work for six days and rest. The religious leaders of the day took that rest and turned it into another responsibility. Instead of just letting it be rest. Don't think that we haven't done the same thing. Come on. We're the Church of the Nazarene. We are a Wesleyan holiness denomination, right? We got our list. We've got our fence around the law. I know many of you don't believe me because you don't read your manual. But it's there. We build fences all the time. The do's, the don'ts, mostly the don'ts, right? The don't, 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 don't. We show people how holy we are by how we follow the don'ts. I can never, I'll tell you what, I'll never forget hearing Jerry Bartlow one time tell me, uh, uh, we don't dance and we don't chew and we don't go with girls who do. That was his motto in college. You know, that's what they said in college down at NNC in the day, now NNU. I busted up laughing because I'd never heard that before. I grew up in the Assembly of God Church. I never heard anything like that before. We danced all the time, let me tell you. We danced at church, let me tell you. It's really kind of hard, though, to be considered a loving church if we're only known for what we're against, right? We need to be known for what we are for. And if what we are for lines up with the Bible, it's really simple. Jesus made it so easy. Loving God with all of your muchness. I know that's not a word. But that's what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And that last time Jesus uses the word strength. That is actually all your muchness with every bit of your being. And the second one is just as important. Love your neighbors, you love yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these 
two things. Right there. That's it. If we filter everything through that, we're not going to be known for what we're against. We're going to be known for what we are for. We can so become a servant to the rules like the Pharisees did. We can keep people from that table. But that's not God's design. That's not God's desire. God's desire is that this table would invite everyone. The life and body of Christ is how he gets his message out. And when we keep people from the life and body of Christ, we are doing the exact opposite of what Jesus did. And what Jesus does and what Jesus wants to do even today. His table is so big. It's enormous. And if you realize it, when Jesus sits down at these tables, it's not just a table to enjoy food and to indulge in food. Although you can tell I do that maybe a little too often. I enjoy a little too much food a little too often. Right? But they're meant to reach out and to build relationship and to do so much more. You see, all too often we want the benefit of foods without the connection to the table. It's easy to forget that there is more than just physical nourishment here. And it's a place where the religious elite of Jesus' time were unwilling to go. As believers, we got to ask ourselves if we're going to participate in God's work, we have to be ready to go beyond the comfort of a neatly arranged place setting. You guys ready to do that? Are you guys ready to have people in your home to share at your table and maybe even share a story which might open a door for healing and restoration? You see, I believe that Jesus wants to eat a meal with each and every one of us here today, just like the times he shared with his disciples in the grain field and around tables with sinners and tax collectors. He wants to share a meal with you and I too. He wants to disciple us. He wants to connect with us. He's already made the first move. He has paid the most expensive dinner ticket you could ever pay. He's done it. It was most costly, but it was worth it. Because he loves each and every one of us. We just simply have to meet him at the table. Jesus is ready to disciple you. Jesus is ready to strengthen you. Jesus is ready to work in you and through you. You just got to meet him at the table. I want to give us just a quick opportunity. I know we're running late. I want to give us just a quick opportunity to be able to meet Jesus at the table this morning. Maybe right where you are, our altars, by the way, our altars are always open. They don't ever close. Have you ever noticed a close sign on them? If you want to come down and meet Jesus at an altar, hey, I don't care if pastor's preaching. I don't care if people are leading worship. If God is directing you to meet him, then come down and meet him. The altar is a sacred place where we meet with God. 
And it's always open. It should never be closed. But I want us to take a moment this morning. I want to invite us as a family to come to his table today and to ask the hard question, God, who do you want me to invite to your table? Because it's not really our table, is it? Oh, I know some of us have some really beautiful dining room tables at home, but it's not really ours. It's his. So let's just take a moment as we close the service. If you feel led to come down to the altar, great. If not, just kneel in the altar of your heart and pray with me this morning. Heavenly Father, God, we do come to you today. And we want to have a place at your table. Father, some of us have been sitting at your table for far too long and forgotten that it's not just about us being nourished, but it's about others. It's about loving you and loving others. And so, Father God, today as we begin to look at who your son sat with and dined with and met with, built relationship with, opened himself up to. Lord God, as we examine all of that, would you help us also to examine our hearts that we would find those moments and opportunities that you bring across our path today, this very day, that we would find those opportunities. And Lord God, that we would trust you to work in us and through us in those times. Lord God, help us to remind ourselves, help us to remind each other that that deeper work you do in us today is for a purpose. It's not just to make us better Christians or make us more Christ-like, although that happens. But Lord God, that we will remember that it's so that you can work through us to the benefit of those around us, to the advancement of your kingdom, to bring you honor and glory. Lord God, we thank you and praise you for what you've done, and we thank you and praise you for what you're going to do. But today, this very moment, would you speak to our hearts as we go into our Sunday school classes? Would you speak through each other to, to encourage one another, to disciple one another, Lord God, that you would be in and through the conversations that happen in what comes next and in the rest of today and the rest of this week, Lord God, that we would be reminded by your Holy Spirit that it's not about us, that it's always about you. May we lift you up in everything that we do. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.